You're listening to MSS Insights, Innovations in Market Systems, a limited podcast series hosted by MarketLinks and the Bacar Institute during the 2023 Market Systems Symposium. This series explores the critical role market systems development practitioners play in shaping international development outcomes. Welcome, everybody. We have a very special guest, Joanna Springer from RTI, who's going to be talking with us about food security and nutrition from a uh, market systems development lens. Uh, one thing that uh, we're seeing is that from an MSD perspective, these issues of food security and nutrition are increasingly more important and quite central to how markets function and whether they're actually delivering value back to society. Great. Thanks, Mike. I work with um, RTI International in the Agriculture, Water, and Environment Division. And um, I focus primarily on um, East Africa, so Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, so countries with a lot of climate effects um, and conflict, working on market system resilience. I support our market systems development programs with uh, measurement, research, and, and learning. I know food security and nutrition become increasingly more important, especially in areas where climate change is really affecting how food is grown but also uh, affecting what food is available in, in the same context. As part of our startup studies for uh, our project in Ethiopia, um, Transforming Agriculture, we did a food environment study. So we went region by region and we identified which were the, the viable crops for income generation and then also which were important for nutrition. And we worked with, with stakeholders to get agreement on those crops that would be prioritized. One thing I've realized is that when uh, working in market systems and then coming at the this issue of food security and nutrition from a market system side is that the, the way markets work can have a huge effect on, on what people consume and also what they produce. Uh, but that also requires the market system itself to function in certain ways. One of the last projects I was on, we focused a lot on retail distribution systems to try to figure out how they could uh, amplify the value of nutritious foods as part of what they were selling, especially as you got into more rural uh, areas, towns, and even into villages, uh, so that you would get this kind of uh, commercialization on a value basis, uh, driven by the consumer, but also being responsive from the business side uh, to kind of push nutritious food as important, but also cost-effective nutritious food. So it's very interesting to kind of look at it from the market system side, as opposed to just how do you kind of um, help a consumer or a rural person buy a certain or different kind of food? Yeah, um, I think we're seeing that with the food systems lens, um, we're looking um, at the access and the choices that people are making around what they um, produce and what they purchase, so how they allocate their household resources. Um, and so it's starting to look at the uh, the household as a consumer. So back to your point about mm -hmm. what are people buying versus what are they producing themselves and thinking too about how we choose the, uh, the, the value chains, right? The commodities that we are, uh, that we want to grow, right? Balancing, we need some for that income effect, but we also need some for the, for the nutrition effect. And if possible, we would always prioritize ones that are also more nutritious. Um, I think another element that comes in there is really making sure that the nutritious food that we want to increase access for doesn't end up getting higher, having a higher price. Um, so that people would no longer be able to afford it. So this is something we've looked at, um, actually with with fishing right if we're encouraging people to switch into uh 
catching or harvesting a certain type of fish that's higher value and improving their market linkages, they can get a lot more money from selling that than they can from reserving it for the for the household use. Uh, one thing we're seeing in other places is this uh, shift to thinking about retail distribution strategies, and especially retail distribution strategies that can be responsive to uh, a customer base that buys very small on an individual basis, but there's a lot of them. So they buy mm -hmm. large volumes, but in lots of small lots, which has a whole set of implications on inventory management, business models and stuff like that. It seems like that would also be an interesting element of the consumer side to being responsive to the kind of way people would perceive and value nutrition and uh, what, they, what they consume, how they consume and what they buy and having that kind of more responsive market system around that. Is that something you've started to work on? How can we get more food to rural consume, rural markets, um, so rural consumers? What are we thinking about how we package it, um, you know, making it easier to access in small, smaller quantities, for instance, um, different types of, of food products that may be considered less desirable, but are still for higher price markets, but are still wholesome? How can we think about refrigeration options and get that moving more um, to to more peripheral areas. So I think that's the way I've been seeing it is that we're just layering in really that nutrition and consumer element, um, which still engages um, a whole host of market actors. And oftentimes it can be the same market actors or similar for, um, for instance, for transport, for, for cold storage, things like that. This brings up this kind of tricky challenge of uh, the kind of producing versus income, the way of managing food security and even nutrition. It's usually in the industrial production where you're seeing really cost effective, really high jumps in efficiency that have essentially allowed food to be produced at a much lower cost per unit, which makes it widely accessible, which is different than if we're trying to figure out how to make sure certain crops are maintained on the on smaller farms or smallholder farms. Again, the, the challenge also with that is smallholder farms are typically inefficient, <laughs> you know what I mean? They kind of need crops that have higher income levels. So there seems to be some uh, challenges or even conflicts in trying to do all of it all at the same time. I do think that the we have to think about the the ecosystems um, when we think about how to industrialize crop production, mm -hmm. and we also have to balance the dependence on international markets. And I think that's something that COVID has really taught us is that we were really really relying on those a certain stability. Um, not only international markets like access, but also in prices, you know, as we've seen mm -hmm. now with the increase in fuel prices. Um, so we were really relying on that stability in order to reach that greater efficiency. And now um, there's a, a, a backpedaling from that because people were were burned, you know, they, they suffered mm -hmm. because of the pandemic um, and now with the Ukraine conflict. And so it does become an issue of how do we bring the private sector in to create um, replacements, for instance, um, replacement inputs um, mm -hmm. when the inputs are too expensive to, to import due to fuel costs, things like that. Um, and, but also again, the, back to the ecosystem question, right? We've also seen that um, there was a dis, sort of a discouragement of pastoralist lifestyles um, in, in Ethiopia, uh, like under previous, um, previous strategies. And yet actually find that that is adapted to those environments and it allowed people to continue to have a um, viable lifestyle and income in very marginal environments. And mm -hmm. that shifting into those large commercial farms in those areas has has been detrimental both to the pastoralists and the, the environment. So I do think we need to uh, consider it as like a, 
ecosystem specific solutions and have to have a tailored approach, especially in a country like Ethiopia, where we have such a wide variety um, of environmental uh, landscapes. Yeah, it also sounds like what you're saying is this need to understand the trade-offs and that there's going to need to be balance. Like there's, there was this, like you said, uh, the example that COVID brought out was this over-focus on efficiency, uh, which had all kinds of implications, but also created a, a pretty fragile environment in certain contexts like COVID that then had a, a real big issue because there's no redundancies in any of these systems. So uh, again, if, you know, you, you can try to look for optimizing, which is a lot of what we talked about before in development, but we realize that optimization also means fragility because you optimize to a specific context. And when that context change, sometimes the way we think of industrialization, we ignore many risk factors, one of them being climate. It seems like then uh, a systems approach that takes a kind of a uh, what what are the what are the learning like the metrics you work on so much are increasingly more important since we are now recognizing very clearly that there are a lot of unintended consequences or trade-offs that we sometimes don't recognize until they start to send signals up. So if you're kind of pushing uh, pastoralists out of their kind of communal coping strategies, which have worked very long, what, you know, that could mean that there's a lot of risk that they can't manage then. The pastoral example is a fraught one, right? Because we have this history of the droughts and the famines, right? So we know that it's a, it is a fragile lifestyle as well. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason um, there's been an effort to sort of shift away into more commercial areas. Um, and I, for me, I guess it comes back to two main things. It comes back to local inequities and it comes back to global inequities. So that locally we see that whenever we have the, um, the droughts, for instance, uh, pa some pastoralist families who have more resources will buy out some of the, the, the weaker families and then people shift into wage labor. We don't tend to do as much um, on social protections for wage labor. And also we don't tend to work in urban areas, which are increasingly important as, um, as a, a buffer resource for, for families is that urban migration and relying on um, those incomes. But we don't have protections for for migrants, uh, we're not making sure that they're getting ser services as much. I think now they're starting to focus more on these urban areas. So there's that question of local inequities and how that over time is um, is is increasing. Um, and then I think there's the global issue, right? Because our timeframes in projects um, tend to be, you know, maybe five years, maybe ten years mm -hmm. if we're lucky. But from a climate perspective. Um, folks are able to model out maybe more like a 30 year timeline. And so sometimes the solutions that make sense for us in the five to 10 year timeline, we know they're no longer gonna be viable, right? People are gonna have to transition um, eventually. And so I think that becomes a very uh, sensitive issue, right? And it's something that we think about a lot in the US is, is how do we facilitate those transitions that we know are gonna be necessary in the long run while still respecting people's agency, preference, cultures, um, social networks in the lifestyle that they that they have. And of course, recognizing that those climate pressures are coming from the, um, the global north, right? So they're not even, they can have the best, uh, most adapted market systems. They're not gonna keep pace with those climate pressures that are always gonna be outstripping them. So I think we always have to have a certain sensitivity in mind as well uh, when we're engaging yeah, a couple of things you said that seem super important just to reiterate. One is the importance of letting those communities kind of uh, make their own path forward with the recognition that an element of that path 
is a risk management strategy that has to ha probably have an increasingly more public goods element to it. This social safety net seems quite important since this idea that, you know, we're just going to get a more income and then they'll be able to solve problems is not an effective strategy. And we see that over and over again. And that when we use the MSR lens, we're seeing that those that that transition requires a combination of communal coping mechanisms, increased income, and also, like you said, uh, uh, a clear understanding of how migration works. Do you know what I mean? The urban migration in particular, where we don't really provide a lot of focus on that. And we don't then help to either deal with the social safety net issues or the equities of job opportunity in urban spaces that are all quite central to even how the rural communities manage risk. Because a lot of that urban to rural my, um, remittances is quite an important component of their wider strategy. It just seems to me that uh, you're, you're pointing out the complexities here that seem so important in, in our work. MSR seems to be really helpful lens at pointing this out, is that uh, there is a difference between food security based on the idea that people can grow a wide range of food, that they're going to eat uh, a, a fairly large percent of what they're growing. Uh, but there is also this element of how do you increase income so that they can buy food. But uh, what I think you're pointing out that is really important is that we've not really recognized of how you need to uh, understand the local context for potential trade-offs or considerations when you're maybe pushing somebody to be monocropping because you think it's going to generate more income when actually they need a diversified set of crops. Or there's communal structures around growing certain types of food that has a strong identity structure to it that is linked to a wide range of coping strategies. And then to move them away from that, even though it may not be the most commercially efficient, may also have knock-on effects that you're not really aware of. Like, uh, especially Ethiopia, the, the what we've seen and what you're kind of describing seems that there's a lot of really important context-specific information that you need to be thinking and balancing all the time. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's, it is very region, region specific um, and the need to sort of have those linkages to across regions and between regions. Um, mm -hmm. And in that sense, uh, yes, the diversification of crops. And I think that's where another um, factor comes in around inclusivity. Um, there has been some research done that shows that women tend to favor um, the subsistence crops over cash crops. And there have been some speculation about are women more risk averse or not, but it's actually that sort of household food security um, awareness that, that they have. So you need both um, the resources to take those risks, but you also need the households to be able to somehow manage and buffer their own, um, their own consumption. And so I think it's partly how do we create um, different types of jobs right beyond the production side for some of those same crops. So for instance, for dairy, you know, some of the work we were doing in Somalia, we're looking at how women have a really important um, source of income from selling milk. And it, even in the rural areas, they can be um, selling on the farm gate. Sometimes they will travel into regional cities and sell that milk. And so sometimes a more market-based solution would say, okay, let's commercialize that activity. And so that's an example of where we say, okay, we need the diversification, but we also need to see how the different nodes of income generation and what different groups are in act, acting in those different nodes. And I think another example would be like, uh, working with youth in agriculture production. So we see recently for a resilience and food security activity um, in Amhara region, we were looking at youth uh, labor opportunities. And some of the feedback is that youth need quicker returns and they need a more steady income stream, right? Because various social constraints that they have. 
So how are we thinking about they can work in agriculture, but work more in um, service delivery or in agent type models, as opposed to focusing on the production side? Uh, how do you balance these difficult challenges of measuring things like systemic change, which is kind of incremental and slow at times, but you're really looking about change over time mm -hmm. uh, versus trying to figure out how to deal with immediate challenges, that, which can have a, a more immediate, sharp uh, consequences. So right now we're starting up um, in Ethiopia and the country specific regions in particular are really trying to recover from recent conflict. There's emergent conflict in others. Um, and we have a longstanding humanitarian caseload. Um, so there is a need to really get um, get things moving right away at the same time that we we do want to make sure that we're engaging in a strategic way and also in a very politically savvy and conflict sensitive way as we're iterating um, and changing over time we also need measurement systems that are not just sort of locked into whatever we measured in in the baseline um, i think another element of that really comes down to um, the gender equity and social inclusion so Oftentimes we want to go in for quick wins. Um, we're maybe looking for actors who are more poised and more ready to engage in the market system um, and generate incomes. But at the same time, we know we actually really need um, more incomes going into the hands of those vulnerable groups who may be less well positioned. Um, so I do think that it does take sort of a multi-pronged approach. So on the one hand, we may be working with businesses um, to help them develop their business continuity plans and help them sort of fill immediate gaps that we see in the market system. But on the other hand, we're going to be maybe working more on a community basis um, with women's groups who are you know, involved in savings groups and helping them to start some micro enterprises and get them um, increasing their income in the short term as well. It's really hard to see this without a gender lens. Um, so when we do engagement in market systems um, without that sensitivity to, to gender and equity and social inclusion, we find that you know the priority ends up being income, and then when that comes back into the household, um, some studies have indicated that, for instance, a male head of household may not even be aware that his children are going without food, for instance, right? Um, so he may be making choices on how to allocate what what's produced on the farm or how to allocate income towards production versus towards household um, nutrition in a way that's different than if uh, caregivers, often women, are engaged in that decision. And so in a way, I see it really as actually it's a more inclusive way to tackle this work where we're looking at both the consumption side, oftentimes driven by women, um, as well as the market system side, but then seeing right that it overlaps, right? Women are very active in the market system. So when we try to think about food systems, we're seeing more opportunities to engage women throughout. Um, but again, get, being more willing to take some of those smaller growth opportunities that we might otherwise choose in a typical approach. For instance, in, uh, in work in Haiti, actually, we found that women had more uh, say in household decisions if they were personally involved in selling the production. How can we make sure that we improve the market conditions that women are going to to sell their production so that they are safer, they make more money, and then they can start to diversify into other value-add products. One thing that we thought was really interesting, is we were seeing that in certain pockets, uh, women, especially women-headed households that were doing a lot of the uh, farming in certain, in certain communities, uh, the actual retail input providers and even the suppliers didn't realize 
the amount of inputs were being purchased through these groups. The the practicalities of women as being either good consumers or good customers is lost. And sometimes just providing that information or helping them see how to create a marketing strategy that makes sense for that consumer segment. There's some very specific contexts that are different from women consumers that would be different from men or even different from women consumers in one community versus another set of women in a different one. And it's really important for businesses to learn that. And I remember working with quite a few like localized retailers and even larger suppliers to help them figure out the business case for, and then how do you change your marketing, distribution strategies, sales strategies, customer service strategies, so that you can grow that customer base over time. Uh, and once they realize uh, that there's a real value as customers, they often move quite quickly in terms of adapting it to other regions and other consumer bases. As we're iterating um, and changing over time, we also need measurement systems that are not just sort of locked into whatever we measured in in the baseline. One of the challenges we have is the the easy measurement, you know, did the person use this thing I gave them, right? Uh, and we can kind of measure that easy versus a harder set of challenges like, is the system getting better at adaptive, uh, being more able to adapt, being able to manage risk more effectively? While it communal coping mechanisms are central, they also have a barrier in that they tend to create a us versus them sometimes dynamic that can lead to problems in their own, own right. But that's a hard set of things to measure. Uh, what do you think we, we either need to do more or where do you think bright spots are in that area? Yeah, um, I think... Um, one trend that we're seeing, and it's really exciting, is that there is more of an appetite from the donor to have more qualitative methods. Mm -hmm. And that does allow us to bring in more perspectives. Um, it allows us to look at these more thorny issues where there's not going to be a metric that we came up with in, in year one that we know is going to be viable or that would even make sense to, to keep measuring each year, right? So each year we might want to look at different things. Um, so I think that the um, opportunity to have more qualitative approaches is important, but also the, the focus on learning, right? We wanna be measuring things that are useful for the program to use, and ideally in the long run, useful for the, the business partners, the communities, um, institutions to use themselves. So we're finding more of a focus on, um, I would say almost like a diagnostic element. So a lot of times the staff will be like, oh, we want a very scientific study. We want incontrovertible evidence of this thing or that thing. And I'm always coming back to be like, well, what, why do you need such scientific evidence? You know, what is it that, that you actually know? And yes, you want validation. You want to make sure that we have a, a good sample and we're, we're getting rigorous evidence of that before you make a decision. But remember what you know, right? And so really focusing on the, the contextual knowledge their lived experience, and then how do we supplement that with additional studies? So that does come back to our theories of change um, or doing results chains. And that activity itself, I think, can really help, especially in these multi-sectoral programs, doing results chain activities where people are really thinking, what's the cause and effect of these short-term outcomes, right? Um, not just my results framework, but really, if I want farmers to adopt this practice, if I want to make sure that women are adopting it, what other players do I need to engage? And those kinds of activities are helpful, especially for uh, staff of different technical areas to start to talk to each other and see how all of their work is interdependent. Mm -hmm. And then I would say on the other side is that we're making sure that how we're measuring business is changing is actually based on information that they can collect themselves, that they can use themselves, that's relevant and that really encourages accountability and feedback loops.
So really trying to set up a more of a learning approach and data that's realistic for them to use and manage, as opposed to trying to focus solely on data that sort of proves that we're doing our job as implementers. Yeah, that point of focusing more on improving rather than proving seems to be so critical, especially because as we're seeing these these inherent tensions uh, in a development process kind of emerge and there's considerations, very context specific considerations you always have to take in that sometimes what we think is the right answer may be the wrong answer. And unless we're kind of in that improve mindset, we may just be figuring out, well, we made the change, so that's good without looking at the context of what that change may have in terms of knock-on effects. It sounds like that is becoming a, a really important element to uh, good system thinking, especially in uh, you know situations that are more difficult. It's quite challenging because what we're seeing is also very context-dependent. As you said, Ethiopia is a very complex place with some areas kind of coming out of conflict, some may be going into conflict, or there may be some pockets of conflict. There's also climate change, which is affecting different parts of the country in different ways that are all kind of having effects on food security, also having effects on nutrition. There are kind of public goods, public system rationale. So political systems, civil society systems are still quite important at managing these stresses and shock. I mean, I think within the resilience framework, we're really trying to have wraparound approaches. And that means we have to be facing sort of the trade-offs between all the different um, levels that we're engaging at. So there isn't a purely um, market solution in the areas where we're working, um, nor is there a purely um, public, right? The public or donor-funded social safety nets are never going to be adequate to actually move people out of that cycle just because the the severity of the shocks, frankly, is, is just in- increasing. Um, and on the other hand, we also know that uh, communities have longstanding systems for, for mutual support, um, for addressing their shared challenges. Um, and I think each one of these systems, the, the markets, the public systems, and the community-based systems, they all can be strengthened through a facilitative approach. So a lot of what I look at in my work is really the inclusivity piece. Um, who has a voice? resources do they have access to and how are we linking them to kind of shift those power dynamics so we're not necessarily edging out one solution over another which i think has been um, sort of a lens that's that some folks have taken is like oh well, how can we um, shift people rapidly off of humanitarian assistance to have them be completely self-sufficient and i think that we need to have a little bit more of a I would say respectful and also patient approach at the scale of the issues that people are facing oftentimes are driven by global global issues that are beyond um, their uh, capacity to cope with. So the market facilitation approach helps us to link actors with more resources. Like for instance, if you have an export market, right? How are we bringing in exporters who have more resources, who have more access to knowledge about international standards and linking them all the way back to the community level in a more productive um, and fruitful relationship? And then simultaneously, how are we working at the community level to equip those more vulnerable actors to actually sort of phase up and engage at that level? One of the other challenges you have is in thin markets, you're really not talking about a lot of businesses that are either willing to go into thin markets or are already there. So you kind of have to work with who's there, but you have to kind of do that with the idea that hopefully they're signaling to others that it's a, a, a useful business or useful reason or useful consumer group to, to also jump in. Consent's always in, that, in thin markets as you start to 
uh, empower one firm so much they they get it they get almost a monopoly position which isn't necessarily great for the consumer in the long term yeah and that can be sometimes why there aren't that many markets is that <laughs> locally too there's resistance to having outside firms come in and so yeah. there's also tensions that emerge and so i think that's again back to the facilitative yeah. approach is we need to continually see you know i'm looking even at things of what are the attitudes of our business partners how are they interacting um with the, the community and other businesses and how do we help to kind of ease tensions. Um, and so that does get back to then more um, culture or norm changes some more of those underlying issues. Yeah, and it's also uh, somewhat related to the the kind of more systemic, systemic issues of inclusivity. I mean, if there's these barriers where they don't like outsiders, then they probably uh, have their own kind of barriers to, uh, to engaging outside people themselves that are going to be quite important for their business and for their kind of risk management strategy. So there's a, there's a whole set of challenges around, uh, you know, the way the social structures work relative to business and back and forth that we kind of have to, it seems like, track that and be a, an important part of any kind of learning process. It's quite challenging because what we're seeing is also very context dependent. As you said, Ethiopia is a very complex place with some areas kind of coming out of conflict, some may be going into conflict, or there may be some pockets of conflict. There's also climate change, which is affecting different parts of the country in different ways that are all kind of having effects on food security, also having effects on nutrition. There are kind of public goods, public system rationale. So political systems, civil society systems are still quite important at managing these stresses and shock. I mean, I think within the resilience framework, we're really trying to have wraparound approaches. And that means we have to be facing sort of the trade-offs between all the different um, levels that we're engaging at. So there isn't a purely um, market solution in the areas where we're working, um, nor is there a purely um, public, right? The public or donor-funded social safety nets are never gonna be adequate to actually move people out of that cycle just because the the severity of the shocks, frankly, is, is just in- increasing. Um, and on the other hand, we also know that uh, communities have longstanding systems for, for mutual support um, for addressing their shared challenges. Um, and I think each one of these systems, the, the markets, the public systems, and the community-based systems, they all can be strengthened through a facilitative approach. So a lot of what I look at in my work is really the inclusivity piece. Um, who has a voice? resources do they have access to and how are we linking them to kind of shift those power dynamics so we're not necessarily edging out one solution over another which i think has been um, sort of a lens that's that some folks have taken is like oh well, how can we um, shift people rapidly off of humanitarian assistance to have them be completely self-sufficient and i think that we need to have a little bit more of a I would say respectful and also patient approach at the scale of the issues that people are facing oftentimes are driven by global global issues that are beyond um, their uh, capacity to cope with. So the market facilitation approach helps us to link actors with more resources. Like for instance, if you have an export market, right? How are we bringing in exporters who have more resources, who have more access to knowledge about international standards and linking them all the way back to the community level in a more productive um, and fruitful relationship? And then simultaneously, how are we working at the community level to equip those more vulnerable actors to actually sort of phase up and engage at that level? Sometimes we, we have to think also of our partners and our staff within their own context, right? Because Sometimes there's a huge regional divides and we're working 
with teams that don't actually have a lot of experience in those more marginal areas. I mean, it depends mm -hmm. on the country, right? The case like Somalia is obviously yeah. so much more difficult, right, to move from one area to another. And so we also still have a facilitative role there and that uh, like facilitating willingness to even talk about those kinds of questions and willingness to be mm -hmm. open and, and take into consideration different viewpoints. And that gets back to where these more participatory measurement approaches, bringing people together so that they can hear other perspectives is really um, valuable for our staff as well. Just because someone is an expert in one area doesn't necessarily mean that they have sort of that overall view of the whole country and all of those different dynamics. They may actually be unaware sometimes of what's happening in these sort of hyper-local um, contexts. Yeah, that's really also, again, this idea that you kind of need this, this odd mix of social cultural insights with uh, sometimes specific crop practice expertise. And you have to balance them, which requires almost this kind of participatory process to kind of highlight or point out considerations that an expert may not even be thinking about, but are quite central to how things work in a certain region. We usually do an applied political economy analysis. So as opposed hmm. to having a, a expert in political economy come in and do that analysis, we actually facilitate the team to do it themselves. And so they, in that process, get to talk to different stakeholders. Mm -hmm. It becomes clear that their expectation is that they do think about those um, cultural, political um, aspects as part of their daily work, and that they do become in some way responsible, that their work plan then has to incorporate, okay, who are you know, the mm -hmm. champions, what are some obstacles that we're going to face on an institutional level? And so instead of thinking, oh, that's outside my wheelhouse, or that's another team's job, or that's beyond the scope of the project, just how they engage can be more um, politically savvy. So that's an approach mm -hmm. that we do take. I would like to see us build on that in highly uh, conflict-affected areas, where a lot of times it's um, very difficult for teams to talk about their country-level conflict issues, especially with you know, in the context of a project um, team meeting, right? Or where there may be outsiders there, or, you know, you never know who's there. But we do need to find ways that when we're entering in different um, different regions, we're doing so in a really savvy way. We're not just, there's one person from our staff who's from that region and we just assume that they are gonna do everything um, in an inclusive and equitable way or that they themselves are equipped to kind of manage those situations. So I do think we wanna keep building out political economy to bring in that conflict sensitivity as well. It sounds also uh, related that maybe the MSR and the market systems kind of analyses also would probably benefit from being more participatory and locally driven with, you know, you can have people who can provide some international. But the local team then, as they learn more and do more, they can see more. I mean, they're just going to be more effective in implementing if they just get a big, long report written by somebody outside. I think it often misses a lot of the most important bits, which are very context-specific, social, culturally, and local, uh, that are that are driving why markets work the way they do or why resilience or coping or communities behave the way they do. Yeah, and that gets back to the tension between addressing systemic issues and there's long-term gains, but then you need the short-term. And in a lot of these areas that are very fragile, they're also very conflict-affected. And so we're being pressed to move quickly. A lot of times we're supposed to do all of our studies and assessments within six months, um, and we haven't even staffed up yet. So it's actually impossible to do a more participatory mm -hmm. approach. So I, I think that in contexts that are so fragile, um, even if you're bringing in an implementer with lots of experience, it's important for them to bring that team 
that they have together and go through this exercise in a meaningful way. So whether it means, okay, the first year you have quick wins and meanwhile you're running these participatory studies and then kind of like a refine and implement year, you have a really intensive learning cycle, engaging stakeholders and figuring out, okay, what's our strategy moving forward? Mm -hmm. Um, I think there can be a way to do quick wins without trying to um, just have outsiders come and do a bunch of studies because that's basically repeating um, maybe what was done before instead of really getting your staff um, boots on the ground, really grappling with these tough issues and also sensitizing the stakeholders to how we're going to do business, hopefully mm-hmm. in a way that's more, you know, systems thinking, but also uh, politically and, and conflict sensitive. In the end, this kind of ongoing learning process is maybe the most important thing we can be doing rather than come thinking we know how things are going to work or change. Yeah, this is this is excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Joanna. You're great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to MSS Insights, Innovations in Market Systems, a limited podcast series hosted by MarketLinks and the Vakar Institute during the 2023 Market Systems Symposium. We hope you gained invaluable insights from our guests in today's episode. To continue the conversation and access additional resources, visit our website at www.marketlinks.org and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and X, formerly known as Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast series, which is available on most podcast platforms to stay up to date on our upcoming episodes and leave a review.